Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hi, Caroline. Hi. You know, I wanted to get us back to fun this week. I wanted to get into uh, our roots, you know? There's been a lot of... I know we talked about Slenderman the last two weeks, but last week it was about child murder. Uh, my ears are... Attempted st- murder. My ears are still ringing from all those family murders I covered all that time ago, uh, last month or the month before. So I wanted to cover one of the most well-known and uh, uh, most written about, certainly, hauntings in U.S. history. Uh, that, of course, is the Amityville Horror. Ooh. And unfortunately, in order to get to that story next week, this week we do have to cover a fair amount of family and child murder. Well, Sean. Well, yes? Don't get on me if you're going to do the same thing. I'm not getting on you. I was the one who did the four weeks on X murders. All right. You have a strange sense of what's uplifting. Well, listen, uh, we're going we're gonna to have some fun this week, and we're certainly <laughs> going to have a lot of fun next week. Okay. Uh, um, but for those who don't know, the Amityville Horror, and again, this is probably the best known haunting in U.S. history, right? One of them, certainly, yeah. Um, the Amityville Horror is a book, actually, published September 1977. Uh, yes, Carrie's pointing to our copy on the bookshelf right behind me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, which I have been thumbing through and uh, will continue thumbing through for next week's episode. Um, The book was, again, published in September 77 and became a bestseller overnight. And it was advertised as presenting a tale as terrifying as recent hits The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby. But this tale was true. Ooh. It was the story of George and Kathy Lutz, who had moved with their three children into a house at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, in December of 1975. On Long Island. As the story goes, 28 days later, the family fled the house, claiming they'd been plagued by dangerous paranormal phenomena more or less the entire month they'd been there. Uh, You know, you're talking your classic poltergeist activity... Um, ghostly figures appearing at the bottom of the stairs, uh, fully animated physical objects at one point in the book. This, like, porcelain lion jumps and bites the dad's leg. Oh, boy. Um, So, very intense. And this book obviously brought self-proclaimed demonologists, Ed and Lorraine Warren, um, who have been dancing around the edges of this podcast for a while now, uh, to national prominence when they helped in the investigation. And by helped, I mean they did a TV spot for the local news. 
The Amityville Horror has spawned at least 37 feature films to date. Both, what? Both television. That's if you count television films. But like Still, at least... Still, that seems like a lot. And at least a dozen like theatrical releases. People are... Even if the story has nothing to do with it, they love attaching the name. So there will be, you know, some tenuous connection to the original story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, And that 37 doesn't include the Conjuring franchise, which given, you know, that that centers around Ed and Lorraine, who were kind of launched into the public consciousness by this story. And I think they sort of, in the first Conjuring, don't they kind of obliquely reference Amityville in their past? Yeah, and then in the second one, they flash back to a scene from there. So technically, you could consider all of th- those seven or eight movies a, a spin-off seven of the story. Seven or eight. Well, yeah, the I nuns, guess the nun. The your Anna- nuns. Your nuns, your Annabelles. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been to the Amityville Horror House. Uh, it's a bit of a rite of passage for anyone in the, the teenage to young adult realm on Long Island who's interested in anything weird. You got to drive by it. Yeah, because Amityville is a small town in Long Island. And um, it means Friendville or like Friendshipville. Yes, just like Amity, uh, Amity Island, of course. Yes. So it's a small town like now, or at least the 2010 census, there's like less than 10,000 people living in Amityville. So you would imagine even smaller back in the 70s when all this went down. And the house is beautiful. Um, it's got, if you remember what it looks like, it's it's so recognizable those eye those eye windows in the top like the triangular windows but they changed those so now they're square and they also changed the house number right it's no longer 112 i don't know what the address is now but it's not 112 ocean avenue yeah but i mean it's a big house it's got a boat house it's right on a some sort of pond or lake or whatever it's really really beautiful and really an acute area uh it's a shame it's a shame it was, to give you an idea of the value of the home, I, I read that it was like four times the value of the home the Lutz family was moving out of in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And certainly they were getting it at a bit of a deal because at the time, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue had been empty for 13 months because of a grisly mass murder that had taken place there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, other alleged details about the home's history would come out in uh, future tellings and retellings of the story. Um, But certainly the, um, again, just grisly murders of six people 13 months before the Lutzes moved in was the first and uh, most obvious explanation for the haunting activities. And so it's that story that we're going to tell today. Great. All right, let me set the scene for you, Carrie. Uh, November 13th, 1974. 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. was drinking, as he often did, at Henry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island. Uh, This was after a hard day of work for Ronald doing oil changes at Briganti Carl Buick in Brooklyn. Um, He had left early that day, but he had also arrived early. And DeFeo was trying to get his family on the phone uh, via the, the phone behind the bar, I assume, or, or a payphone. You have a phone in the bar mm-hmm. and was loudly complaining that he hadn't been able to get a hold of them all day. Mm-hmm. This is around 6 p.m. And so finally, Ronald Jr., uh, whose friends called him Butch. As you do. Uh, called out loudly, but uh, casually. I'm just going to go check on him. Uh, I'll just break in through a window uh, if I have to. And this is at 6 p.m.? This is around 6 p.m., yes. 
Okay. He leaves the bar, and around 6.30, Butch rushed back in, yelling to whoever would listen, You gotta help me! I think my mother and father are shot! Oh. DeFeo and some bar patrons headed over to the house as quickly as they could. Um, I'm guessing they jumped into a car at this point, but Butch could have uh, walked in in the first place because it was a a two-minute drive or a five-minute walk from the bar to Ocean Avenue. Now, once they got to the house, DeFeo and uh, whoever else he could round up for this posse found (laughs) Ronald and Luis DeFeo, both 43 years old, uh, Butch's parents, both shot twice in the torso to death, face down in their beds. Mm. Uh, One of Butch's buddies who was on the scene made a call to the police. The guy's name was Joe Use It. Use what? Use It. (laughs) Y-E-W-S-I-T. He called police. Police arrived on the scene a few minutes later and found Ron Jr.'s sisters, Dawn and Allison, as well as his brothers, Mark and John Matthew, all shot to death each with one bullet, all lying face down in their own beds, just like their parents were. Okay, so they're in bed, and it's only 6.30-ish. Yes, they're all in their pajamas. So were they like this from the night before? Yes, they were, and we will get into the timeline. Uh, The timeline gets a little sticky here, but uh, Uh, we'll... It already seems pretty sticky. We'll nail it down. Um, By the way, the ages on the children... um, Butch, Ron Jr., was the oldest, but uh, Dawn was 18, Allison 13, Mark 12, and John Matthew 9. Mm. The boys had been shot in the back, Dawn in the back of the neck, and Allison in the face, possibly after waking up during the other murders. Jesus. Um, investigators, you know, over the course of the day, determined that the family were all killed with the same thirty-five caliber lever-action rifle around 3 that morning. Mm-hmm. And the position of Louise's body, too, suggested she had probably woken up just before the moment of her death. So this happened at... Was Butch at home? Well, as I said, Butch had left early for work the next day. Not three o'clock early. Uh, he said he left for work around four in the morning, but we'll get to what Butch told police at first in just a little bit. Okay. First, a little history on the DeFeo family. Let's get to know these folks. Sure. Uh, Ron and Louise DeFeo had bought the house in 65 and had lived with their children uh, there ever since. So almost a decade now since they had moved from Brooklyn. Uh, Ron still worked in Brooklyn. He was the service manager at Briganti Carl Buick. Where, uh, which Louise's family owned. I think her father was the owner of the dealership. And then Butch also worked there. And Butch worked for his father in the service department, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they bought this house, which again was, the value on it was like, it was such a bigger, uh, so much bigger than their previous house. And Ron was kind of, fi- kind of finally like making something of himself in his career, thanks to his family connections. Um, but nonetheless, uh, this house represented high hopes for them, and that is what they put on the sign that they nailed into the front yard. The name of the home was High Hopes. Womp womp. Um, now, people who knew the family said pretty much uniformly, it sounds like, to police that Ron had a temper, to put it mildly, and was verbally and physically abusive, especially toward his wife and his oldest son. Mm-hmm. Um, Butch's friends actually said that they had seen Ron hit both Butch and his mother while they were visiting. Jeez. So, like, well, company's over usually. That stuff kind of stays swept under the rug. 
Yeah, especially the mom. I mean, you might see the dad smacking around the son a little bit, but... Yeah, no, the, his friends described it as a crazy house where the DeFeos were always just yelling at each other constantly. And then uh, arguments, especially between Butch and his dad, would qu- like pretty quickly and unpredictably come to blows. Not doing great for the New York Italian image. Uh, that's that's right. Um, now, Butch was, I guess, chubby as a kid, and he was also bullied mercilessly at school. And apparently his dad had always been big on like, well, you got to toughen up. You got to stand up for yourself. Um, but then would also himself bully Butch at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if this is needless to say or not, but Butch inherited his dad's anger problems. Well, I mean, that tends to happen, yeah, with abuse situations. Um, his parents sent him to a shrink when he was a teen uh, to try to work some of that stuff out to no avail. <laughs> That's surprising, actually, that they would even in go the, to that length. In the 70s? Yeah. yeah. But the problems that they were dealing with must have been pretty severe because he was actually kicked out of school, kicked out of his private high school at 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't finish high school, Butch. Uh, at this point, he he started working at the dealership once his dad uh, offered him a job there. Um, but he apparently skipped out on shifts basically whenever he felt like it, knowing he would get a paycheck anyway, and started using uh, LSD and heroin. Great. Yeah. And this, I guess, started fraying Butch's mind even more, or at least that's the picture that we have painted for us. Mm -hmm. Um, A friend said shortly after he should have graduated from high school, they were on a hunting trip where Butch aimed a rifle at his face during an argument they were having (sighs) and cocked it. And so the friend like fled, but then the next time they saw each other, Butch was just like, hey man, what's going on? Hey, why'd you leave so early the other day? Because you were going to shoot my face off, Butch. Because you seemed a lot like you were going to shoot my face off. (laughs) Yeah, he, you know, local bartenders said Butch was in all the time and was very, very fun until he started drinking. And then he'd be like throwing bar stools and pool cues around the room. Um, So we have a, you know, a pretty uniform picture of a guy with a a bit of a temper and certainly not all of his screws uh, uh, totally tightened. Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, on in November of 1974, when the crime happened, uh, Butch was on probation for theft. He had pled guilty to stealing an outboard motor off of a boat, for reasons I don't understand. Um, but in the past few weeks, he'd also pointed a shotgun at his father during a heated argument at their house. That's his signature move. And pulled the trigger. Oh, God. The gun didn't go off, and then he, like, stormed out of the house. Now, we're not tot- How do you even come back from that? I don't know, and we're not sure what that argument was about. And this is all hearsay from... This is all neighbor gossip, right? Because the whole family's dead except for Ron? Yeah, but I mean, if he got arrested for attempted murder, that would be in the record. That's true. Uh, he wasn't arrested for attempted murder, though. Uh, and we're not sure what the argument was about, but neighbors said uh, that Butch had also lost about $20,000 of money from the dealership. That Ron Sr. had entrusted to him. Well, that seems like a dumb plan. He, like, had a friend rob him on the way to the dealership. And his dad was just, like, like immediately knew what was going on. Yeah, it's a little obvious. Some of the neighbors said that after the uh, altercation with the shotgun, Ron Sr. had been making a big show of going to church every Sunday and praying and carrying rosary beads like he was really turning over a new leaf. Now... All of that brings us up, of course, to the morning of November 13th, 1974. Or the... Was it a Friday? 
brings us to the evening of November 13th, 1974. No, I don't think it was a Friday. Darn. Police obviously had lots of questions for Butch, because as you say, um, his family was all clearly murdered at a time when he presumably would also have been sleeping in his bed. Mm -hmm. So why wasn't he murdered? And why did he apparently not know what had happened? Mm -hmm. Well, Butch said that the previous day, November 12th, he had stayed home from work, as he often did, because he knew he was going to get paid anyway. Um, but he said he was sick all day with a stomach bug. Um, so he didn't really leave the house, didn't get anything done, and certainly didn't go to work. And he went to bed around 2 a.m. after watching the late night movie, which was Castle Keep with Burt Lancaster. Okay. Butch said he woke up around 4 so he slept for two hours? He slept for two hours and he said Through he was... Through a shooting? And he said he was awakened by stomach pains. Okay. As he got up, he told police he saw the bathroom light on with his brother's wheelchair. His brother had recently broken his leg. And he saw his brother's wheelchair outside the bathroom and heard the toilet flush. Uh-huh. At this point, I think he like casually said to police, like, and, and he's, a, he's a fucking pig, my brother. He always, oh, they're always leaving the bathroom, both of them. They're always leaving the bathroom all shitty with uh, uh, stuff on the seat. Just a weird thing to say after your brother's been brutally murdered. Uh, yeah, and he said something about he was going to eat in a minute. He's, uh, he, in a minute, he says he went to eat lunch at a luncheonette because his mom was a terrible cook. Again, it's weird to disparage the dead, especially when it's like your family. Exactly. So, um, hearing the toilet flush and not really wanting to see his brother, so he didn't seem to have much, uh, much affection for, Butch decided to leave early for work without seeing any of the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. He ate at a luncheonette. As I said, he didn't want the leftover slop from his mom's <laughs> uh, dinner. And, Which is a, t a terrible thing to say about an Italian mother. Well, and it's a terrible thing to say to the police right after your mother's yeah. been murdered. Yeah. Just from a smarts perspective, from a like human decency perspective. Just say you wanted to go to the luncheonette. You don't have to throw in the fact that she's a terrible cook. It's weird. It's all weird choices. And he, was, he spoke callously like that about like every member of the family. Mm. So he ate at this luncheonette, started work at 6 a.m., which I think was early. Um, but that meant that he left work early, but he didn't go home. He called his girlfriend and a couple of buddies to meet him at Henry's bar where he was hanging out when our story began at 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. Sitting in the kitchen, asked by police who could possibly have done such a thing to his family, uh, the only name Butch could come up with, or the name that came immediately to his lips, was Louis Fellini. Was this a mobster? How did you guess, Carrie? Uh, you know, uh, Italian intuition. That's right. Louis Fellini was supposedly, because uh, this is only a pseudonym that we have for him, but supposedly a mafia hitman who had lived with the family for a while, a couple of years ago, after Fellini, quote unquote, and his wife had been displaced by a fire. Mm -hmm. Now, Butch, Ron Jr., said that uh, Fellini had helped his father, Ron Sr., install a small hiding space in the basement of the new home for gems and cash. Um, because the family, he intimated strongly that the family was like mob-connected, and they may have been, actually, through his mother's father. 
and not the type to like trust the banks or things like that. When, when his mother, when his grandfather showed up at the uh, crime scene, they were like, "Do you know this Louis Fellini?" And he was like, "Yeah, of course I do. He's a great stand-up guy. <laughs> he would never do anything like this." But he also said the same thing about his grandson, who probably did do something very much like this. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's just that's just the grand the grandfather. Later on, Butch said that he and Fellini had gotten into an argument. You see, Fellini had brought his car to the dealership to be painted. Butch had screwed up the paint job somehow, and they had gotten into... <laughs> somehow, he manages to do it. Um, he's, I mean, he's like... A ne'er-do-well. He's a junkie. A ne'er-do-well junkie. Poor Butch. Um, so he screws up this paint job somehow. The two get into a verbal altercation. That apparently ended with Butch calling this guy, who he says is a notorious mob hitman, a cocksucker. Oh, no. And so Butch told police, and so I think I may have put my family in real danger. But why wouldn't he kill you specifically for calling him that and pissing him off? Right. He just kills the rest of your family instead? It's not really a mobster thing to kill the family and leave you alive to, like, emotionally suffer? Yeah. If anything, they'll more likely leave the family out of it. Right. Not always, obviously. It depends on what you do and how bad it is. But they're going to get you. Right. (laughs) Now, Butch said he was very clear on the point that he had never seen Fellini. He didn't didn't know, but but he suspected that this Louis Fellini was behind the murder of his family, if anyone was. Um, but he claimed to have slept through the entire uh, murder. So many gunshots. So many gunshots. And again, he would have in this, you know, in this picture he's painted, he would have been the primary target. Yeah. So <laughs> so why is he the only one left alone and he just gets to go get up and go to work the next day? I don't know. So that was um, the story, <laughs> the story that Ronald DeFeo Jr. told to police about the murder of his family. Um, Of course, the police were still gathering evidence, and as we know from covering um, so many crimes like this, Carrie, evidence always tells. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, So far, what do you you think of this crime? You really have to ask? I do. It seems clear that Butch did it himself, then went about his day... And did the whole trying to call the family thing to sort of establish some kind of alibi, but didn't really think it through whatsoever. No, I've been trying to call my family all day. My question would be, obviously he has a bone to pick with his dad and maybe even his mom, but why is he killing the whole family? But, um, yeah, he's not a well man. Well, he's definitely not a well man. <laughs> so We'll get to his uh, courtroom testimony and the whole thing a little later. Um, but first, as I said, evidence always tells, and we're going to get into what eventually ended up pointing the finger at or the Ro- gun or the gun at Ronald DeFeo Jr. Uh, for police. And um, so we'll continue with that investigation right after the break. All right. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, 
with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had covered the brutal murder of the DeFeo family. Mother, father, and four children. And as a reminder, this is all just prelude to the so-called Amityville horror that we're going to cover next week. Yeah, this isn't even the horror. Well, This whole f- family being slaughtered. I would argue, and I wouldn't be the first to say, uh, this is the... I mean, this is the real horror. Yes, of course. Right here. A family being murdered in their beds. Uh, and, and I don't want that to be lost. Yes, we've covered a lot of family murders on this podcast. That does, This is a truly... This doesn't happen very often. Every time one of these family annihilations happens, the papers all say, this is the worst crime that's ever been done in this area. And certainly the and papers... And it usually is. And it it's usually horrific. is. And certainly the papers in Amityville said that about uh, this tragic again four children lost their lives yeah um and here was ronald defeo jr right in the middle of it now remember ronald had as we said been the first to quote discover his family after working all day but when police uh, took a look at them so here's my here's my question for you carrie do you think he didn't know police would be able to tell when the people had been shot like, do you think he was hoping it would just be like, well, they were probably shot while he was at work? Maybe. It, it just seems like not much of this was thought through at all. It, it's just, it's a frantic mind at work. Well, he seems like a very disorganized man. I don't think that there this was like a um, super planned out affair. Yeah. Yeah. But even, even just thinking about what to do afterward, I don't know. It just all seems very muddled. Well, he probably did leave for work around 4 a.m., right? So he just, well, we'll get, we'll eventually get the real. I don't real... think it takes that long to get to Brooklyn from Amityville. Two hours? Yeah, but he went to have uh, l- lunch have at lunch. the luncheonette. Well, breakfast. Which, when is this luncheonette opening? It's probably like a diner, like an all-night diner. Yeah. Well, no shortage of those in the New York area, I suppose. No, certainly not. Um, but I do think this was a crime of passion, kind of committed uh, in a, in a, just moment of rage for some reason and uh, or in a couple hour period of rage and certainly with a weapon that he had close to hand and he loved pointing that shit at people and again it was a uh, 35 caliber marlin bolt action sorry lever action rifle that police decided the crime had been committed with now it just so happened that while searching butch's room police found two cardboard boxes white cardboard boxes um, long ones, like the kind you would uh, get a gun and store a gun in. And the two boxes happened to be labeled. And the two labels were for a Marlin 22 caliber rifle and a Marlin 35 caliber rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't be long before the police would find the rifle itself, but they were going to need, spoiler alert, Butch's help uh, with that one. Now, I'm kind of surprised by that, actually. It doesn't seem like a good hider. Um, he wasn't, but they hadn't, <laughs> they hadn't gone far enough yet uh, in their, in their uh, f- you know, footwork. Mm-hmm. 
Because it didn't really take much to get Butch to fold. Uh, investigators questioned him for about a minute, it sounds like, after he, they found this gun box, before he acknowledged that the crime had happened more between 2 and 4 a.m. Um, his story up to that point was, well, they must have been killed after I left the house because someone was flushing the toilet, right? Now his story is that he somehow slept through a bunch of people being murdered by a gun. Well, that's kind of what investigators asked him. So hold on. If this Fellini was coming after your family because of you, why did you, how did you sleep through it? And why were you allowed to sleep through it? Mm -hmm. And left alive. And now Butch amended his story for the first time of many. As they do. Now, he said, okay, all right, you got me. (sighs) Fellini, right? He woke me up around three in the morning with a gun to my head. And it was him and another man there. Mm. And uh, Butch said that... The one-armed man. The one-armed man, of course. And Butch said that Fellini and this fantasy accomplice, who he couldn't describe in any way, um, led Butch from room to room, murdering each member of the family... Uh, in front of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, as he was, uh, he, he sort of got, this is so, he's a very bad murderer. Yeah. Uh, Ron DeFeo Jr. But as he was getting into this description, it sounds like he sort of just got carried away <laughs> and started adding too much detail. And so he's going, and so then I was picking up the casings from that one. And they said, hold on, Butch, why were you picking up the casings? <laughs> He's a vampire. When when you scatter things in front of him, he's forced to count them. You don't think this was your gun they were using, do you? You say you weren't involved in the in planning this crime. Why would you have been picking up the casings for them? And he's sort of scrambling for answers. And uh, and they the investigators finally said, Butch, they were never really there, were they? Fellini, the other guy, they were never there. Mm-hmm. And when Butch finally cracked, he said. No, it all started so fast. Once I started, I, j- I just couldn't stop. It was so fast. This isn't a Pringle. Once you pop, the fun don't stop. That's exactly what it was. <sighs> Butch explained that he slid the gun out of, its, out of its box late at night, crept into his parents' room, stood at the foot of their bed for a moment, shot his father through the back, then his mother as she started to stir in her sleep. Then he went to his brother's room and shot each of them in the back, standing at the foot of their beds, sort of parallel little twin beds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then John, Dawn and Allison, just as described before. And only Allison appeared to be starting to wake up? That's one of the... That's crazy. It is one of the remaining questions and, and the, one of the many, many things that like still throws dust up around this story. But yes. Was there a toxicology report on the victims? Police also found, by the way, that Butch had been attempting to buy a silencer in the months before this crime, Mm -hmm. uh, but hadn't been able to get one. Right. So again, was there a toxicology done on the victims? There was. No drugs in their system. At one point, I think Butch actually claimed while he was in prison to have uh, drugged or poisoned his family. But again, the toxicology report said that that hadn't happened. So... Because I could totally see him being like, well, her food was terrible anyway. No one would know. Right. Huh. That's weird. After the whole bloody business was done, around 3 a.m., the dog was barking outside. Neighbors had also reported the dog going crazy around that time. Did he leave the dog alive? He did. He didn't kill the dog. Butch 
uh, calmly took a shower, trimmed his beard, and dressed in his work clothes. He took the bloody night clothes he had committed the crime in and wrapped them and the rifle in a pillowcase. And on his way over to the luncheonette, he just dropped them off in a storm drain. Mm-hmm. Were they found later? Yeah, once they he found in the drain. Once he got to this part of the story, he led investigators to the storm drain and showed them the evidence. Mm-hmm. And now it was time for a trial to begin. In what was, and you know, in these cases, the trial was always a media circus. Um, because again, this is the like crime of the century in this particular area. Mm-hmm. And even in the New York area, the murder of six people is such a shocking thing. And, and the last member of the family being on trial for the murders, um, it's going to get a lot of attention. So uh, media circus as the trial begins on October 14th of 1975. And is this where the devil made me do it enters the equation? Um, no, it wasn't the devil made me do it so much as uh, an insanity just a general blanket insanity defense. Well, there was a point where he said like demons were possessing him. Yes, uh, but that was ac- that was one of his later revisions. Oh, okay. So not during the trial. No, Ron DeFeo Jr. would uh, uh, tell several additional versions of how the night uh, how the night his family died went uh, over the years after this trial. Mm. For the time being. It was more of just uh, trying to prove his his attorneys just wanted to prove that he was too crazy to be held responsible for his actions. Um, meanwhile, the prosecution's case obviously was mainly just proving that he was mm-hmm. cognizant of his actions and and should stay in prison for the rest of his life. I mean, as we talked about last week, an insanity defense is hard to get away with. Very. You have to be very crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the defense attorney representing Butch was named William Weber, and his first move was to try to get the whole trial thrown out. Um, Butch didn't have access to counsel before his arrest or before his confession. Well, that's not good. It's not good. And the uh, lawyers also alleged that he'd been beaten during his interrogation and that it was a forced confession. Um, but those claims ultimately didn't stick, and we were moving ahead, baby. Hmm. Uh, Gerard Sullivan, the assistant district attorney, was personally assigned to handle the prosecution. Now, Weber made a, I would say, a non-standard choice, but maybe you have to do this. I don't know. What do you think? If you're trying to mount an insanity defense, do you have to put your defendant on the stand? I'm trying to think of examples where that's happened before. Uh, Probably not, but... I mean, this is a little too early in trial history to go with a, you know, like kind of driven mad by abuse defense, which a lot of people use. I mean, you know, the Menendez brothers, um, and they were on the stand. But yeah, I don't think I'd put this guy on the stand. He's a he's a known liar. He's not well. I mean, even if he's not insane, he's not doing great. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I would. So his lawyers were arguing that Butch was not guilty by reason of insanity, um, but Butch spent his actual time on the stand mostly um, claiming he was not guilty by reason of self-defense because the voices in his head had told him that his family would murder him 
if he didn't murder them first. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, Weber did put him on the stand. And while examining his client, Weber showed him a picture of his mother lying in bed, shot in the back twice. And Butch said uh, he'd never seen that person before in his life. That's not my mother, sir. Mm-hmm. Then he was shown a picture of his father, also from the crime scene, and asked if he killed him. And he said, did I kill him? Yes, sir. I killed them all. I killed them all in self-defense. Even like the 12-year-old? I, I, I picture him putting on like extra crazy voice at this point, which is yeah. why <laughs> I'm putting on extra crazy voice. I mean, he clearly knew he had done something wrong because he tried to hide the evidence, even you know, however shittily he did it. And yes. that's kind of the main thing of an insanity defense. Well, yes, exactly. And we talked about this. I, we talked about this with the slender man thing last week. All, all of the, you know, planning and uh, attempts to. Well, I guess they didn't really attempt to hide what they'd done because they thought they were just going to vanish, right? It, yeah, they thought they they were going to go off with slender man. Right um, now, Butch couldn't have thought slender man was coming to take him away because he uh, he did make sure to get those clothes and that gun into the storm drain. But he went on to tell his attorney, as far as I'm concerned, if I didn't kill my family, they were going to kill me. And as far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defense. There's nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. Well, that does sound pretty crazy. That does sound pretty crazy. <laughs> now you're mounting an insanity yeah, defense, when you friend. When you claim you're God or Jesus. Only when he has a gun in his hand. Well... Um, but Sullivan sounds like a pretty savvy prosecutor mm-hmm. and I love reading these savvy cross-examinations, you know? Um, so Sullivan, uh, why don't you read the lawyer right there? Okay. You felt good at the time? Uh, yes, sir. I believe I felt very good. Is that because you knew they were dead because you had given them each two shots? I, I don't know why. I can't answer that. Honestly. Do you remember being glad? I don't remember being glad. I remember feeling very good. Good. <laughs> Why uh, does he sound like a character from Red Dead Redemption? Um, he was... <laughs> um, because I've played it pretty recently. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, yes, you're right. It sounds like uh, Micah. Mm. That's who I'm doing, I think. Sure. Um, Sullivan, you know, this was him trying to show lack of remorse... Uh, but he ultimately was also trying to provoke Butch. Uh, and eventually he did to the point where Butch interrupted a question to say, you think I'm playing? If I had any sense, which I don't. <laughs> but if I did. I'd come down there and kill you now. <laughs> I love that. It's like, so wait, he so remembers you're halfway- holding back from killing him because you don't have sense? He remembers halfway through his sentence that he's trying to do an insanity defense. Like, if I had any sense, which I don't. You're not going to get me. But it, it still doesn't make sense, which I guess is the point. Yeah. I, he makes a good argument that he's a crazy person <laughs> here. But he, uh, but again, we do know that he knew what he did was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but both sides brought, and this was what this trial was always going to come down to, both sides brought expert witnesses, quote unquote, who were psychiatrists who gave their opinions on the defendant's mental state. Right. Um. So that's kind of like a wizard battle. I like when a, a um, trial becomes like two experts shooting it out. And um, ultimately, it sounds like both the experts really did their 
research and did did the work, but it was Sullivan who had the better cross examination, uh, whereas Weber just kind of sent his guy up there and let him dryly uh, uh, give the facts, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, Sullivan also argued the the removal of evidence from the crime scene was obvious proof that Butch knew what he did was wrong mm-hmm. and was trying to get away with it. That was kind of the linchpin of his argument. Yeah, I mean, as badly as he did it, he was trying to get away f- with it, so. Yeah. Uh, now, the jury agrees with you, Carrie, and with me, and with Sullivan, that Butch had known that what he did was wrong, and so Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty on Friday, November 21st, 1975, of six counts of second-degree murder. Uh, it actually did take a couple of, you know, rounds of, of jury deliberation. They, there were a couple of, there were like two holdouts who wanted to say he was too crazy. Um, but there was never, you know, even going into the courtroom, there was never any uh, dispute over the events of that night. Who actually did the killing. Right. Yeah. Um, DeFeo was sentenced to 25 to life on all six counts and remained incarcerated until his death on March 12th, 2021, at Albany Medical Center. So just last year, we lost him. Yeah, I remember we lost him. I remember the news about it. Rest in power? No. No. Rest in peace, though. Just rest. Rest, Ronnie. You've done enough. (laughs) Rest, period. You've done too much. Yeah. Um, But he wasn't done yet. Butch launched multiple appeals over the course of his life in prison. Um, And as we said, the story changed multiple times, Uh, most notably after the release of the Amityville Horror. The book. Yes. Which, by the way, uh, William Weber, his attorney, Mm -hmm. would later say, I don't know, the the Lutzes never agreed with this, but Weber later claimed that he helped outline the book. Oh. He's he's an author, too? Well, I think it was just kind of a prelude to uh, Ronald DeFeo's continued, you know, appeals Appeals. and uh, uh, changes to the story. Because some of those did indeed include the house being built on an Indian burial ground (laughs) and uh, satanic influences uh, uh, causing his, you know, basically the same haunting that the DeFeo, that the Lutz family would deal with 13 months later wasn't caused by this murder, but that sinister satanic forces had caused both uh, this murder and the future paranormal haunting. So using the Amityville horror story, what was his new appeal? What did he say happened? Oh, I think it was just a, it was a renewed insanity appeal ultimately. But with a new twist, right? Yes, because he claimed that the the house had a demonic possession as shown by uh, the paranormal investigators who had been part of the uh, Amityville Horror uh, publishing. So it's less, I have uh, voices in my head because I have a mental illness and more I have voices talking to me because they're ghosts. That's exactly right. But that's actually not the only way that he tried to get out of this. Uh, the first appeal was on the, uh, you know, sometimes you just offer enough evidence that another suspect was involved. Mm-hmm. And so for a while, Butch was trying to make the claim that Louise, his mother, had done all of the murders, that Butch had come home late from a drug bender to find his mother had murdered all of the children and his father, and Butch just wasn't able to come out with the story until now because he didn't want to shock. He thought his grandfather would die from the, from the news. 
that his that his daughter had done such a thing. And now he's like, well, who cares? Well, I guess I'll say it now. She was a terrible cook and a murderer. <laughs> and she shot her. Oh, and then Butch shot her in the back. But I guess placed her in the bed. Yeah. Or she was just going back to sleep. Going back to sleep to the next corpse. to the corpse. Uh, okay. Um, so that appeal didn't go anywhere, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, he would also claim that uh, during the demonic possession, there was like a a woman with dark robes. We'll get into those claims next week as part of our haunting investigation, but uh, a woman with dark robes came in and gave him the murder weapon, uh, and he implied that could be a real person or a demon. Who knows? Um, But it sort of played into his claims that he and his sister, Dawn, had planned the murder of his parents together. I think this was one of the more recent claims because I remember seeing a documentary, might have been called The Real Amityville Horror or something Mm -hmm. like that, where he's still to this day claiming something like that. Yeah, and there have been some authors who have gotten on board with him uh, about this, at least to the level of like, well, there's some things that point to... The the main things people point to is apparently there was a little bit of unburned gunpowder on Dawn's body, Mm -hmm. which has been pointed to as evidence that she fired a gun, um, but it could also just be... Um, a fluke. A fluke, exactly. And... There was also... And I don't know that the unburned gunpowder's on her hand. Right. And also these people lived in... Um, these people did hunt and stuff, so they all could have had gunpowder burns, technically. But... I could be wrong about this, but I feel like part of the story was something like she wanted to run away with a boyfriend and her dad wouldn't let her and she was pissed. Yeah, and that may very well be true. Um, well, I think he just was using that as a motive for her to kill everyone. Right. Well, and the father was abusive to everyone in the family. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you kill, like, the kids. Well, uh, here's the thing. He said that he and Don had planned to murder the parents, and Don was more gung-ho about it than Butch was. So Butch was a little squeamish. He gave her the gun and left the house so she could do the deed. But he said when he came back, Dawn had killed all of the children as well. She had just kind of turned it into a kill-crazy rampage and murdered the whole family. And then she tried to murder Butch, and he had to kill her in self-defense. First of all, he doesn't seem like a squeamish sort of fellow. And second of all, no, Butch, that's just what you did. Now, you just think he's a squeamish sort of fellow because I... No, I said he doesn't. You just think that because you know he murdered six people, though. But he still doesn't seem very squeamish. He's like a mechanic. He goes to bars. I mean, this is a stereotype, but he doesn't seem like he's shying away from stuff. Yeah, but, uh, you know, changing a couple of spark plugs is different from uh, pumping your whole family full of lead, Carrie. I'm just saying. His name's Butch. Um, so Butch... It's so not bitch. He came in. Dawn had killed everyone, and he had to kill her before she could kill him. Now, how that ends up with Dawn being shot in the back of the neck in her bed... Well, she was also going back to sleep Cause it, afterward. Because it was his other sister who was shot in the face, even. Yeah. So He's not very good at lying. So just none of it holds water. But this is where people have... The other thing people have pointed to is that, well, without drugs in the family system, how could they all have been... That is weird. ...killed? And so it's been... Well, maybe if there were multiple gunmen, like either Louis Fellini and this other accomplice... Uh, which Butch abandoned that story. We know that story's not true. I have heard paranormal explanations for that. Um, or the idea that uh, uh, Butch and his sister were both killing at the same time. However, police right off the bat said that all four people were killed with the same gun. 
Mm-hmm. So, well, Butch at some point said that his plan with Dawn involved drugging the family. Um, again, the toxicology reports say that that didn't happen. So, nay, nay, sir. None of this is helpful. You know, yeah, I agree there are questions that have to be answered still about this crime or that haven't been answered and likely will never be. Um, but I don't see how these explanations answer any of those. Mm-hmm. So, none of Butcher's stories exactly hold water. They also all, as you can tell, get increasingly convoluted. Even yes. even from that first one with Louis Fellini leading him around the house with a, with a pistol. Convoluted and desperate. And DeFeo seems to be a pathological liar. Mm-hmm. Who certainly has a reason to lie in this case, because he would like to get he would have liked to get out of prison. But that said, he was the only person living until last year who really knew what happened that night. And he took those secrets to the grave with him. Mm-hmm. So we'll never know. Not exactly, no. So uh that is that's the part of that's the entire story of the Amityville Horror, Carrie, as far as stuff that actually happened. <laughs> yeah. People died. Uh, yes. They died horribly. They died at the hands of a, uh, of a loved one. And uh, that man incompetently flopped around uh, courtrooms and jails for the next, uh, uh, you know, 40 years. Mm-hmm. So next we're going to go into the spooky stuff. Yeah, well, the house, as I said, stayed vacant for uh, 13 months before the Lutz family moved into it in December of 1975. And um, just a month after that, they fled the house. And in between that time, we had all of the makings of the horror story. I don't know, the the indelible American horror story that uh, uh, remains in our imaginations to this day mm-hmm. uh so we're gonna get into it and um this is so sadly true of the most public ones it's i i, I think people don't realize how thoroughly it's been um you know debunked and and uh, uh ridiculed over the years so we're gonna have a lot of fun with the amityville horror and the lutz family um, when we come back next week. Well, I know what your take on it is going to be. Um, Carrie, check out what everyone's take on Well, never mind. I'll, I'll bring you through it next week. <sighs> All right. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. It's me and my boo. A viral video this week poses the question, can ghosts speak to us through Alexa? Um, I Listen, I can't, I can't get our Google Home thing to answer me half the time, <laughs> well, ghostly or not. It just doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It works you fine for you. You do swear at it. Yeah, when it doesn't, fuck it, never mind. <laughs> Earlier this month, paranormal-themed TikTok account, Ghost Toast 
underscore tunes posted footage of a man that can be seen being roused from his sleep by sounds coming from elsewhere in his house. As he goes to see what was causing the noise, his Alexa device starts speaking to him from the other room. Let's take a listen. She was my wife. Who was your wife? Who was your wife? You took her from me. I didn't take anyone. Okay. Intrigued. (laughs) And as he waits to hear if the Alexa will say anything else, an odd dark mist can briefly be seen manifesting and then disappearing behind the man. I found her here. I found her. Who? Who have you found? Use that device again. Tell me who. Tell me your name. My wife. My wife. Okay. His account name is Ghost Toast Tunes? (laughs) No, this is just who reposted the video. Um, According to Coast to Coast AM Facebook, the fellow's name is Lee, and he runs the Really Haunted YouTube page documenting his experiences living in an allegedly haunted house. So if you just type in Really Haunted into YouTube, you'll bring up his channel. But he does have a YouTube channel dedicated to showing how haunted his house is? Yes. Mm. (laughs) Some commenters, however, stated that he has been debunked by other YouTube channels. I haven't uh, dove in to see this because it's just YouTubers commenting on other YouTubers. But yeah, he seems to be a known entity in the paranormal YouTube community. It does seem possible to have Alexa say specific things thanks to its skills capa- uh, capability, but whether they can do so unprompted, like not you know saying, hey, Alexa, or if they can do so guided by a connected computer where you're just typing in words for the Alexa to spout out, I'm not quite sure. We are a Google Home family after all. Hey, Google, hit the theme song. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yes, uh, special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. We love you all very much. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan, and you can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. (laughs) 
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.